market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Connor Matchett. I'm the Deputy Political Editor at the paper. And with me, as always, seemingly, is our Political Editor, Alistair Grant. Alistair, I hope you're doing well. How are things? Not too bad. How are you? Getting on. Just about. It's been a long couple of weeks for me, um, having been up at the SNP conference, but we'll come to that later on. Um, lots of stuff to come in today's show. We've got an interview with uh, Cocab Stewart, one of the SNP's rising stars from SNP conference later on, and also our weekly dispatch from Westminster from our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown. But let's kick off with the biggest story of the week, which is obviously the Supreme Court hearing in London around IndyRef2 competence. Alistair, you were listening to it for both days. Presumably you did something wrong um, to end up with that job. How was it? <laughs> it was, I, I think the best way to describe it is intermittently interesting. It was, uh, you know, some of it was really fascinating and some of it was just kind of really dry, detailed legal arguments, as you'd expect. Um, so just to give a recap, you know, this is obviously the legal batter, battle sorry, over whether the Scottish Parliament has the power to legislate for a second, well, for an independence referendum. So it's long been a matter of debate. There's differing kind of academic opinions on this in the past. And the Scottish government basically wants the question answered in a bid to kind of break this deadlock over IndyRef2. Uh, so Nicola Sturgeon obviously wants to hold a second referendum in October next year. The UK government will not agree to this. So having a repeat of a 2014 style referendum is impossible. There's just no agreement between the two governments. So the Lord Advocate had kind of referred, uh, Lord, Lord Advocate being the, the Scottish government's top law officer, had referred the Scottish government's draft independence referendum bill to the Supreme Court to try and get a ruling on whether it is within Holyrood's competence and whether the Scottish Parliament has a power to legislate on this issue. On this issue, Because she said that she doesn't have the necessary degree of confidence or, on, on that point to sign it off herself. So I'm going to try and be as brief as possible for looking at this, but it is quite complicated, but I'm going to try and not get kind of bogged down in all the kind of minutiae of the legal arguments. But essentially, the Supreme Court is looking at two different points. So it's looking at whether it has the jurisdiction to make a ruling on, on this issue, on a draft bill, given that it's not been scrutinised or passed by MSPs. So whether it should make a ruling on, on the issue at this time, that's the kind of first, first thing it's looking at. And then the second thing is whether or not this draft legisl legislation is actually within the Scottish Parliament's powers or whether it's relating to matters reserved to Westminster. So there's a bit, I think it was interesting in the court case because there's a lot of focus on that first point, on the kind of process under which this was uh, referred to the court, essentially. So the Lord Advocate for the Scottish Government was obviously arguing that the, the court should resolve. She was urging the court to resolve this festering issue uh, as to whether the Scottish Parliament has this power. She said it's a kind of a genuine issue. It's a matter of public interest for the court, UK's highest court, to make a ruling on this, to make a decision. And then the other side, you had Sir James Eady, 
a kind of senior lawyer acting for the UK government, who was essentially saying the question should not be farmed out to the Supreme Court. So he was saying it's not appropriate for courts to engage in kind of abstract questions of law when there's not an existing bill that's been, well, there's a draft bill, but there's not a bill that's been passed and voted on by MSPs. So he said the Lord Advocate's request is essentially kind of dragging the court into uh, the political process, the political arena. Uh, so it's, there was much complicated, dry legal arguments around this and about uh, Schedule 6, you know, paragraph 1F of Schedule 6 to the Scotland Act. Uh, but for the sake of time and my own sanity, I'm not, I'm not going to go into. Um, but suffice to say that, you know, a big part of the case kind of hinges on the UK government saying that it should be chucked out. The court shouldn't uh, consider it because it's premature. No bill has been passed. And the law advocate, the Scottish government, saying that uh, the court should make a ruling uh, because it's a kind of correct constitutional and legal. They've taken the correct constitutional and legal route in referring it to the court. That's a genuine issue and all that kind of thing. And then on the second point, sorry, I know I'm dragging, <laughs> blabbing on a bit here. But if you're still with me on the second point of whether Holyrood has the competence to legislate in this area, just very briefly, much of the legal argument around this centres on differing interpretations of the Scotland Act, uh, which says that matters relating to the Union in the UK Parliament are reserved to Westminster. So the Lord Advocate has sort of, she sort of presented both sides of the argument in her kind of written submission to the court, and again, kind of in her oral submission. But she's kind of essentially saying the Scottish Government would have uh, an advisory, the advisory referendum planned by the Scottish government would have no prescribed legal consequences. And it's kind of simply to ascertain the views of the people of Scotland. So it doesn't relate to the union in that it's not ending the union. It's not, it's kind of simply asking people for their views, essentially. Um, and Sir James Eady kind of branding that position incoherent, contrary to common sense. You know, he's saying the union is reserved to Westminster. Scotland Act is very clear about that. And a, a draft independence referendum bill self-evidently relates to the union. Um, so he's kind of saying it's, you know, it's evidence, obvious that the Scottish government consider and intend that the referendum will further the case for independence. And interestingly, he was bringing up comments that Nicholas Sturgeon has made in the past about this issue. So that's the kind of opposing sides. And I think one of the most interesting things that we found out right at the beginning of the case uh, was the Supreme Court President Lord Reid essentially saying that it might take some months to actually come to a ruling on this. Which, if you think about it, considering Nicola Sturgeon wants to hold a referendum in October next year, could be a bit of an issue for her if this is dragging on. It's an interesting one, isn't it? This whole case is um, one of those that appears very important, but in reality is probably just a big, long intermission period between the next kind of set of political arguments on the, on the Constitution. You know, if, for example you know, the SNP or the Scottish Government even win this case and they have a referendum uh, bill passed and they end up in a referendum, then they're kind of stuck again, even if they win that referendum, because there's there's no need for the UK government to, to engage with it. If they lose the, the Supreme Court case, then they're still stuck because, the, you know, the UK government can still not engage with them. It, 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 do you, would you agree that this is kind of a a legal battle that only politics can fix rather than lawyers? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I think this is a political issue and eventually it's going to come have to come back to the political arena in the end. Uh, you know, it's a point that other people have made, but the SNP don't just want a referendum, they want independence. 
and that requires the UK government to come to the negotiating table at some point. Uh, I think it's probably best to view this court case. Uh, one, it's, uh, it's a fascinating legal issue um, and it is genuinely something that there are different views on. Although I think probably these days, uh, the kind of overwhelming, or at least the majority legal opinion is that the Scottish government will probably lose this case. But it's probably best to view the entire thing as a way for the Scottish government to try and break the deadlock. Because we've obviously had, you know, ever since UK government saying, you know, now is not the time, um, kind of refusing to engage on this issue. And this is a way to try and kind of move it on a bit. So I think even if the, the court, like you say, comes back and says, yes, you can have this advisory referendum next year, the Scottish government will still be pushing for that, you know, kind of go, quote unquote gold standard repeat of 2014. Uh, and if the Supreme Court battle doesn't go their way, Nicola Sturgeon has kind of said that she'll do this idea of a de facto referendum using the next general election to campaign in this issue, which sounds like an extremely messy idea, not clear how it would work in practice. And it, again, is probably just best viewed as a, a method of applying pressure. But there is no doubt that, you know, this isn't a, it's not, fundamentally, it's not a legal issue. It's a political issue. And she, she, Nicholas Sturgeon mentioned a lot of these facts in her conference speech on Monday in Aberdeen in front of delegates. We'll come back to, to what she said there. But do, do you think that this government really, truly believes that they're going to win this case and hold a referendum next year? Or do you think that they are merely going through the motions, as, to, as you say, to break the deadlock? Uh, I'm, I'm sure they would disagree with this, but no, I don't. I don't think they truly believe that there will be a referendum in October next year. I think maybe you know, ideally in an ideal world they might want that, but I think the expectation is that there probably won't be. Um, but yeah, they've got to do something. They've got to try and break the deadlock, and they've got to keep pushing for it. And we have had this situation that you know we've spoken about before for a number of years now, where there's always been you know a referendum is just over the horizon. It's just coming. It's always being held out as a incoming thing for SNP supporters to look forward to uh, and no progress has really been made on that front uh, so at least now there is a way to try and move things on even if eventually uh, it does require the UK government to play ball in some shape or form. Absolutely we'll have more in Scotland on Sunday this weekend from um, one of the architects of the Edinburgh Agreement Kieran Martin who is um, very kindly writing a, an analysis piece. Kieran is you know one of the I think most interesting reader <laughs> writers even on on the topic of the constitution given given his role in in the 2012 2011 Edinburgh agreement um just go, going forward to to again the, the conference and moving on to that just briefly before we go and hear from Alex but um did, did, what what did as an outsider what was your what was your making of uh, Nicholas Sturgeon's speech on Monday as an outsider as, as someone who wasn't in the room yeah to explain i, I obviously didn't attend smp conference uh connor did so he can maybe speak about the atmosphere in, you can hear the, the rasps in my voice yeah in the arena <laughs> whether it was a you know electro you know electrical atmosphere kind of all that kind of thing uh, i think from an outsider's point of view from someone who wasn't there it seemed quite stale it seemed like there wasn't a lot of new policy ideas there wasn't a lot of um there wasn't really anything new coming out of it I think Nicola Sturgeon's speech was, you know, it's obviously the speech of someone in total control of her party. Uh, there's no real rivals to the SNP in Scottish politics. It's a very confident party. It's confident of its place. It's confident of its uh, continued success. 
Um, but there wasn't really much new in it. I think if you're, particularly if you're a journalist and you're trying to find a, a news line in something, you're trying to find what's new, what's what's the thing that's not been said before. There wasn't really that much of it. I mean, I don't know what you made of it in the room. Well, I, I, it's one of those things where, um, as you say, she is in complete control of her party and therefore anything that she says is greeted with rapturous applause and, and standing ovation. She's certainly got a focus on um, foreign policy that was interestingly high up in the speech. You know, she began almost stateswoman-like in addressing all of the big foreign policy issues of the time before moving on to, you know, the, the domestic issues and attacking her critics in the opposition. Um, and then obviously we had the, the usual kind of barnstorming independence rhetoric towards the end. Um, and yeah, I think I think the the, the, the speech had very little new in it. Um, it was a classic Nicola Sturgeon speech in that regard, very well delivered, absolutely no question about that. She's a much better speaker than, than Liz Truss um, and many other prime ministers that we've had during Nicola Sturgeon's time. Um, but in reality, it was cautious, you know, saying that independence was isn't going to be this economic miracle, saying that it's not a panacea. It was focused on social issues a lot of the time the big policy announcement doubling the bridging payments to low-income families you know that's a classic sturgeon issue much like the scottish child payment um and on independence and um, there was no progress it was we will finish the job she's been saying that since she's she was you know since brexit really um so i think it kind of summed her up as a politician stuck in the situation she exists in now I think one of the, the interesting things about it actually was there was a lot of, you know, the kind of expected political attacks on the Tories, on Liz Truss, on the Westminster government. There was also an entire uh, section devoted to attacking Labour. Yeah, mm. I think she kind of accused them of uh, you know, throwing people onto the, I can't remember the exact word she used, the Brexit bus or something like that. Um, and it's quite, uh, I mean, I haven't gone back and looked at prior speeches by Nicola Sturgeon at SNP conference, but the first time I can remember that there was such a kind of targeted attack on Labour, which reflects the uh, you know, kind of Labour's UK-wide surge at the moment in the polls, and I think uh, it reflects SNP uh, perhaps concern about that in some levels, but also just that they're a target for them in a way that they maybe wouldn't have been in the past. Absolutely. Well, we'll chat a bit more about that shortly. But let's, uh, since you mentioned Westminster, let's turn to our Westminster correspondent Alexander Brown, who gives us the latest from that very busy place where there's slightly less confidence in the Prime Minister than maybe there is within the SNP on Nicola Sturgeon. Hello and welcome back to the Scotsman section of the Steamy podcast. My name is Alexander Brown. I'm the paper's Westminster correspondent. And boy, oh boy, have I had a busy week. Remarkably, in a week where I have sprained my ankle and got coronavirus, meaning I missed the wedding of one of my best friends, I've still had a better seven days than the Prime Minister. Liz Truss. I mean, it's important to remember that she's been the Prime Minister now for about five weeks and is now the most unpopular party leader of any party since YouGov began polling. It is a situation that, speaking to MPs this week in the Commons, seems to be one that cannot be saved. I spoke to numerous MPs before her appearance at PMQs who were cautiously optimistic, hoping that she would go out on Wednesday and deliver like a strong speech that could show her economic plan and convince a public who are losing faith in the, both the party and her 
as being trusted on the economy and restore uh, confidence in the Conservative Party. Instead, she uh, <laughs> absolutely messed it up and made things even worse later on. Uh, so in PMQ, she said, you know, that they would not be cutting benefits uh, and there would not be a return to austerity, a line that was then basically dismissed by her own spokesman with an hour who said there will be hard decisions. Then in the evening, she met with the 1922 committee and spoke to backbench MPs and speaking to some after, they told me it was like a funeral. They said that she felt like she was dead on arrival and uh, that they had never seen the party in a worse state. And you know what, you know, you're working in Westminster, you think we've all, we're all quite emotional at the time. I've definitely got upset over things and then I slept on it. Uh, spoke to people the next day, actually far worse. Uh, MPs told me that she was awful, they'd never felt so low, that there was going to have to be a general election, they had to get rid of her, and MPs now actively scheming. Um, I don't know if I can say the next bit because I don't know what the bleeping situation is, but one said that even she looks like she knows she's a bad word which is not necessarily uh, <laughs> how you want to be perceived. You know, a prime minister so poor at her job that you look like you know you're rubbish at your job. You know, there's a, there's a line in the wire how you have to look the part, be the part, and it seems like the prime minister is not doing that at the moment. So what of the chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, who fled, sorry, went to America for meetings, um, and he said that he was sticking by the growth plan, uh, and the, you know they were focused on getting on with the job when he was interviewed by broadcasters, but also repeatedly refused to rule out U-turns uh, on other measures of the budget. And then, well, sorry, the, the fiscal event, the mini budget. I think they're still working on the branding, um, even if they're not actually working on the policy. And he was defending it, but also then said, "Will there be more U-turns?" And later on said, "Let's see," which in the pantheon of uh, strong and stable government and belief in your convictions, let's see. If someone says to me, can we go, can we watch this film that they want to watch and I don't, and I say, let's see, realistically, I, you know, that's not me ruling it out, but I'm hinting that maybe I don't want to. So it might happen, but I don't want to. And that's essentially, I think, how the Chancellor feels about U-turns. The Treasury are currently looking and going back through the budget and looking at all the individual measures uh, line by line uh, to U-turn on them. At the same time, Downing Street are saying there will be no U-turns. And the Treasury Secretary is saying there will be no U-turns. And the Chancellor, brimming with confidence, who is supposed to be coming back on Saturday, has flown back late on Thursday night, essentially to make sure that he is, I think in the words of one MP, not kneecapped and uh, made the scapegoat. So, I mean, it's as you were, really. I mean, I, I, there's not much to say about the Labour Party. They've, they're changing headquarters. They're going to be working from home for two weeks. That's about as dramatic as it gets. And the Conservative Party continues to be trying to eat itself uh, and there is a real chance now of a general election. The, the mood is, I have never felt closer to general election. I mean, speaking to MPs, they think that actually, they, they would like a unity candidate. They would like to just get rid of her and put in, you know, Penny Morton, Rishi Sunak. But that's like fancy booking, you know? It's like picking your favorite footballers, thinking they play together. No, they can't, uh, the chance is gone. That's exactly what's happening here. Next week is going to be absolutely brutal. The idea is they'll get to the next uh, financial update on Halloween, which is fantastic comms, again, from Downing Street. But realistically, many MPs think it's a matter of weeks rather than months of how long Liz Truss's premiership will last, which is you know, considerably shorter than my part of the podcast. Back to you in the studio. Thank you very much for that, Alex. Um, we were talking beforehand about... Labour and the attacks on Labour from the SNP, that was one of the things that I thought was 
really noticeable about quite a few speeches from, you know, SNP front benches. And I think Labour will also see an opportunity from SNP conference in that, you know, there was actually, I think, <laughs> out of seven or eight cabinet ministers, including the FM, who stood up and spoke, only three really had speeches. And that was Keith Brown, Ian and John Swinney and Nicola Sturgeon. And then you also had Ian Blackford from, from Westminster talking about it. And a lot of the time on all four speeches was focused on or spent on Labour. And I think they're a bit spooked. I think they view Labour as coming up as a as a very big obstacle towards, you know, the future of the independence movement because they like having a conservative bogeyman. Yeah, I think they're spooked. We we spoke about this briefly in the last podcast. Obviously, people should go back and listen to when we were talking about the latest polling in Scotland. But uh, Labour have undoubtedly had a bit had a surge under uh, recent weeks in polls. Um, I think that is something the SNP are worried about. Keir Starmer obviously presenting himself as the future prime minister, uh, and I think it's definitely true to say that at least some of the SNP support in Scotland is fueled by people not liking the Tories, not liking the Westminster government, and if the prospect of a Labour government becomes a real thing and seems like something that's going to happen, that would be something that would maybe concern the SNP in the sense that people won't have that kind of Tory bogeyman to uh, play against in a way. Um, I think it's more difficult for the SNP if you have a, another centre-left government in charge uh, down south. So yeah, I, th- I think they are spooked by it. Um, and I think it was really noticeable that it played such a part in her speech in a way that, as I said earlier, I, I don't I don't think it has in the past. And I think for Labour, it's a compliment. You know, if you become someone that's worthy of attacking politics, it's a compliment because they've been, you know, irrelevant in Scottish politics for a while now. Uh, and they'll be delighted that, to be honest, they're forming part of the speech of the First Minister at the SNP conference. It's only a good thing for them. It's fair to say as well that Labour view the SNP as a bit of a threat, given that, you know, Keir Starmer mentioned independence in the SNP. I think more times, uh, this is off Twitter, I've not double-checked this, so... Uh, don't shoot me in the comments if this is unverified nonsense. But my understanding is that the uh, the number of times SNP and independence was mentioned in Keir Starmer's speech was more than the phrase cost of living. Um, and they obviously view a potential coalition with the SNP as a problem. And that, that kind of 2015 almost coalition of chaos um, line as something that really hits home. Um so they're both very, you know, despite the political aspects of their parties overlapping extensively, um, they're both terrified of each other because of what the opposition might say. Yeah, it's it's one of the the kind of funny, I don't know if funny is the right word, one of the features of Scottish politics that the SNP and Labour on, on, pol- on a policy level have quite a lot in common, but just on the constitution, they're obviously bitter enemies. And, you know, it's sometimes said that there's more animosity between Labour and the SNP than there is between you know, Labour and the Tories, for example, there is a lot of real, uh, they're not fans of each other, put it that way. Um, and I think it's something that Labour have had to deal with in Westminster. There's been all this kind of talk that comes up repeatedly about uh, potentially some kind of deal with the SNP to get into power. Uh, and Keir Starmer has had to rule that out a number of times. He can't have been more clear about it now. Whether or not you believe him is obviously a different issue, but he has certainly ruled it out again and again. Uh, and there's, you know, their memories will go back to that a uh, famous campaign post I think it was a campaign poster certainly an image that was shared a lot on social media of uh, Alex Salmond with Ed Miliband on, in the pocket of his jacket um, which was perceived to have done them damage so they, they just want to distance themselves as much as possible um, 
and there is also a part of the labor movement that just uh, has no time for nationalism of any variety it doesn't matter if it's you know civic or however you describe it they just are fundamentally opposed to it and just cannot come around to it so let's hear now very briefly from cocab stewart one of the snp rising stars within their msp group who spoke to me in aberdeen while at the conference so welcome to SNP Conference in Aberdeen. I'm here with uh, MSP Cocab Stewart, one of the SNP's rising stars, supposedly. Um, thank you very much for taking the time out of a very busy day and a very busy weekend to chat to us. How are you finding conference so far? Uh, well, thank you for the warm welcome, and that has been replicated by hundreds and possibly thousands of my fellow uh, SNPers as well. It's wonderful to be back live and seeing people again. Very exciting times for us ahead. And you, you moved to Topical Motion literally about half an hour ago um, about anti-racism. Can you take us through why you did that and, and what the what the reception was like from the floor? I've been a teacher for almost 29 years before I got elected, so education is something I feel passionate about, and I've always campaigned for um, anti-racism in education um, at all levels, not only for the children, but also for teachers and teacher recruitment. Um, and uh, I was absolutely disgusted and appalled uh, by a succession of events that have happened over the last few weeks. Uh, teachers that were presenting materials on anti-racism and decolonization colonization and when that was publicized uh, unfortunately they were um, subject to the most horrendous abuse online which frankly is very cowardly to be hiding uh, behind Twitter and all the rest of it and I would call on social media platforms um, to be screening and monitoring uh, these posts um, and I'm very grateful for the fact that actually the, G uh, the GTC Education Scotland amongst others uh, called that out and stood beside our colleagues um, and then of course a visit to a school um, it's a familiar territory for me and uh, to see a picture of young children and as adults and you then turn that into somehow becoming racist, well, not becoming racist, but actually demonstrating your racism, that's appalling. But again, what has happened there is that people have stood in solidarity with not only St Albert's, but actually all of our children across this nation. And I think that's a really, really powerful message. And then, of course, at Glasgow University, unfortunately, we've had anti-Chinese graffiti that's been posted. Now, that has been removed, but nevertheless, that is not the message we want to send. This is not the Scotland that uh, we want. Um, we are an open, diverse, inclusive society. So I was really pleased by the reception from conference. Um, and Christina Cannon, who uh, supported the motion, uh, she was brilliant as well um, in that. I mean, that, that whole event on Twitter with, with the school that the First Minister visited, um, you know, people taking to Twitter to come up with conspiracy theories, very racist conspiracy theories. She said, you're a teacher. How, how would that make you feel if, if that had been your kids, you know, subject to that horrific abuse? It's absolutely appalling because actually children have a right not only to an education but also joy mm -hmm. and happiness and to be with their friends and to be loved and nurtured. And Glasgow is a nurturing city, um, uh, as are many across Scotland. Um, and all that positivity by some, and it is a minority, unfortunately their voices get amplified through social media, but we must remember it is a minority. 
society. Um, and it makes you feel uh, undervalued, it makes you feel under a spotlight that you never wanted, and yet we should be able to celebrate the success of our children. We should be able to have role models of elected members who are responsible for their constituencies after all. This was a constituency visit. Um, and I visit schools in my constituency. I've even taught in some of the schools in my constituency. Um, and to have that twisted um, is just absolutely appalling. And there's no place for it here. You're, you're new to Parliament, relatively, now. Um, how have you found the first year? What, what's the, what's, what were the big challenges you faced or, you know... Um, what were the big differences from what you expected to what's actually been the experience? Well, um, having run the campaign during COVID times and having to adapt and then getting elected under very unusual yeah. times, I didn't even meet uh, all of my colleagues until last <laughs> April when we were all together. Um, Any but, regrets in meeting them in person? Uh, <laughs> no regrets at all, apart from having to resize people. Um, uh -huh. I realise that some people are a lot taller in real life or uh, I am a lot smaller in real life, apparently. Um, but Aside from that, no, it's been lovely uh, to have uh, that bo body heat um, of people around you and to build that camaraderie and uh, build the connections. And not only actually within the SNP, but across the chamber, um, because we do actually all communicate. We do actually work together. Uh, you know, we do the, the dueling um, in the chamber, but we do have to work cross party on a lot of issues. And you need to be with people in order to build those relationships. Who's your favourite opposition MP MSP? in that case? I have no favourites oh, at all. On, you're, no, on. no, you're asking a teacher for a favourite and that... <laughs> Who do you enjoy working with? I'll put it that way. Well, I enjoy... Uh, well, there's several, and I'm not going to name names because that, that would be unfair, uh, because it's not a question of personalities for me, it's a question of principle and policy, so there are different people that I have worked with on different issues, um, and that's not to say that I would agree with them on other issues, but where we have common ground um, and we can come together to work on something, uh, then that deserves respect. You tipped as a bit of a rising star by some in the media. Do you, do you agree with that? Is that is that a description that you would go along with? Well, it's an interesting... What's your definition of a rising star? I mean, they take millions of years to form, right? <laughs> and the first time that I stood for Parliament uh, was actually in the first Scottish Parliament elections in 1999. So this rising star has only taken 20 years to get elected. Uh, so make of that what you will. <laughs> You're here now. I am. So the star has risen to an extent. So do, do, you, do you fancy a top job in, in, in the party and in, and in government? That, yeah, that's not for uh, me to say or to speculate on. Um, I have waited this long to be elected and to provide a voice for people possibly who haven't had a voice before, um, to make sure that, you know, I increased the vote um, when I stood as uh, not an incumbent. I wasn't an uh, incumbent. Uh, took over from Sandra White, who was there for many, many years, and I still managed to increase that vote. So my bit is to make sure that things like education, things like housing, which is very important in Kelvin, um, and also uh, independence as well. So it's it's about doing the job. So I will get on and do the job. I've waited this long, rolling my sleeves up and getting stuck in, and whatever happens in the future uh, happens in the future, but I'm enjoying what I do just now. You do realise that's a Boris Johnson line, you know, rolling up the sleeves and getting on with the job? <laughs> well, uh, I, I think Boris and I have very different <laughs> sleeves and very different shoes. What do you make of the SNP's kind of challenges, at, you know, in this conference and more generally, 
you know, go forward into the next year. It's, it's, it's a big year if things go the right way for, for the party at the Supreme Court. Um, but it's also big spending cuts as well on the horizon. It's very, very challenging. Um, and what we must remember is that all four nations are uh, facing uh, actual, you know, the brutality of austerity, which uh, is being led, you know, that charge has been led by Westminster. Um, but, every well, we know that things can change on a sixpence because they, you know, do U-turns. Um, but uh, it is incredibly challenging. And I think for the SNP, um, we want to make sure that we continue uh, to uh, stick up for the people of Scotland and you know all the things that we can do differently the levers that we do have at the moment that we max those out and we use those and we're doing that I mean we, we passed the the rent cap the rent freeze um, and again that's very healthy working with the Greens to do that so it's providing these positive models to actually have a functioning government um, that is taking care of its people in direct contrast to Westminster which is a dysfunctional government that is only uh, taking care of the very rich. You've got two more days left of conference. This is the first day. You've got a lot on? I do have a lot on. Um, my diary is eye-watering. It's hard enough getting uh, hold of it. <laughs> <laughs> but here I am. And uh, shall we say quality? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, Coco. Appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs> So it's interesting to hear from CoCab there. She spoke quite a lot about um, the racism aspects that, uh, and issues that are currently going around in Scotland, particularly Scottish sport and also uh, terrible things that happened and were said on Twitter to the group of school kids who um, the First Minister did a, did a visit with. Um, but it's interesting to hear that, you know, people like uh, CoCab have got... <laughs> are not really willing to say if they want the top job um, or want to move up the ranks of the SNP. Do you, do you think there's a progression problem in the SNP at the minute from, you know, lower down the ranks upwards, especially of those rising stars, just because of the the age and the, and the experience of those right at the top of, of, of the party? Um, well, in a sense, you know, we've never, I think I'm right in saying we've never had, uh, or certainly there are more Scottish government ministers now than there have been in previous years under other administrations. So there are roles to go into and we have seen people rising up through the ranks uh, into kind of junior minister positions. Um, but I, there's certainly a progression problem when it comes to the top job. There's no one that we could really think of that would is an obvious contender to take the first minister role when Nicola Sturgeon decides to step down. There are figures like John Swinney, who's been around for a long time. He's seen as a safe pair of hands. He's obviously hugely trusted by Nicola Sturgeon. Um, but he seems to, you know, he's got two different roles. So, you know, he's Deputy First Minister, he's Finance Secretary. Um, he just seems to be put in place maybe because there's no one who could easily move into one of those roles rather than him. Um, I mean, I think that's particularly the case with the Finance Secretary or Kate Forbes off on maternity leave, obviously. Um, and I think it was notable that he was brought into that role. It's obviously a role that he's done in the past. Um, so he's ex hugely experienced, but they maybe do have a problem when it comes to, um, I think it's it's maybe, it, 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 I'm not sure how true this is. I didn't cover politics under Alex Salmond, but he was always seen as quite good at cultivating people and bringing them into his uh, kind of close circle and, you know, as they kind of rose up through the ranks. And maybe the perception has been that Nicola Surgeon isn't as good as that. She's not as good at, um, kind of seeking out talent and helping them rise through the ranks of the SNP. Um, and it's certainly, yeah, as I say, with the, with the top job, it's certainly a problem. Absolutely. Well, let us know at home if you 
think the SNP have a progression problem. But thank you very much for listening. That's all we've got time for this week on the Steamy. Um, we'll be back next week. Thank you very much, Alistair. And thank you very much um, for listening. Bye-bye. Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.